Welcome to History and Film. Today is going to be kind of of a necessity, a bit of a somber episode. We will be touching on slavery as we look at 12 Years a Slave, the Best Picture winner from 2013. This is a movie that is spectacularly made. It's a, it's a highest quality production on every level. One, it, again, one Best Picture. It was my favorite movie of the year. And I even put it on my best of the decade list at number eight, I believe, for the the teens, the 20 teens there. That said, it is a very heavy watch. If you have not seen it before, one, you need to see it. But it's almost maybe like a, oh, like a Schindler's List, where it's like, you need to see it. It's important, but it's not necessarily one you're going to want to revisit often because it's so heavy. Right. And I would even argue... I would even argue that even people that are like, oh, I don't know, like, I don't really like, you know, the really like the graphic stuff or the violence or like the heavy themes or, you know, I'm, I'm squeamish. It's like, no, you need to watch it anyway, because this stuff actually happened. Like, right, right. Even if it's going to make you severely, severely uncomfortable, watch it anyway. Right. Because you know what? Some people had to live through this. So you can sit in your living room and watch a movie about it. Yeah. Not as exactly. like penance, not as penance, but just like right, yeah, yeah, as an important human experience. Like, yeah, and honestly, yeah, I think this film is that good. It this film is important to the human experience, and you need to watch it. And so we say that I have I've seen it twice, but I I, I don't think Logan or myself rewatched it for this episode. But we've both seen it. I, have you seen it more than once, or have you seen it? I've seen it at least twice. I think okay, maybe okay, I, maybe even three times. But I, okay. yeah, at least twice I've seen it. Okay, yeah, same. So we will uh, still be talking about today. And honestly, too, we're going to be talking about the institution of slavery in general. And, you know, we usually kind of like to hit on what the movie gets right and wrong. And this movie's, frankly, pretty darned accurate. And there are a few things yeah. that they, they tweaked and uh, a couple things that are not quite right. Uh, but for the most part, there's nothing big. And, e- and even the historical figures, you know, the quote historical figures, basically the whole cast that has like, a Wikipedia page is only because they are in this movie and in Solomon Northrup's book. So like his, his masters are listed by name. And so things like that. Yeah. And when we talk about historical accuracy too, it's important to note that like with the way that these slaves are being treated in the movie, if anything, the historical inaccuracies are on the side of it's more brutal in real life than they show in the movie. Right, because I wasn't even reading specifically, they're saying like, well, because obviously he would have seen slaves beaten and whipped every day. Every single day. Right, literally every single day. And so like in the film, it'd be like, geez, okay, we get it. Like if you're watching it from a film standpoint, you almost have to make it not as bad. And it actually reminds me of what George R. R. Martin has said about Game of Thrones, because people will talk about the violence and the sexual violence and all those kinds of things. And he's like, read a history book. It was worse than anything I have in my books. 100%. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. T- to the point where you're right. If you if you showed it accurately, it would be perceived as like too heavy handed or like, okay, we get it. Like the slave, the slave owners are evil. Like, do we really need to see every 15 minutes, like every single day a slave being whipped? It's like, no, that's, that's what reality was. And uh, actually in one, uh, not not to undercut that, but I was reading one of the, it wasn't even a criticism, but one of the things they said that was different or potentially inaccurate is that so benedict cumberbatch's character who is kind of is his first owner the guy who buys him from the auction or whatever right they have a pretty good relationship and it's actually a it's amicable as much as it 
could be given the circumstances. I mean, this guy owns him and they definitely make him torn about the whole thing. And and he's far from perfect and does end up kind of selling off to another guy. Uh, What I was reading is that in the book, Solomon's even nicer about him. Like he's actually even nicer in real life than he we even than we see in the movie. Oh, really? Yeah. And again, he was still a slaveholder. He did still sell him to this worst yeah. guy, but he he was maybe even less torn about how to treat the slave and was mostly just a nice guy to his slaves. Again, not to excuse or I'm not trying to whitewash that uh, these slaveholders were 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 good people. And again, I will, I probably want to say up front here too cuz I feel like a lot of stuff I hate I hate when people talk about or they say like it's like a white guilt thing if you're you're talking about this stuff, you're just trying to make white white people feel guilty. It's like, even though I will fully recognize the horrors of everything that went on here, I personally don't feel guilt. <laughs> I mean, and I don't think you right. anyone contemporarily yeah. should. So if you, I almost feel like if you feel guilty about this, I, I guess I'm that confuses me. I'm like, you're not you're not involved, right? Right. The the I guess the only reason to feel guilty would be if you like actually owned the slaves. I mean, as it pertains to this specifically, but... Right, and I forget if I've said before, but, like, I don't have any ancestors that fought for the North in the Civil War. My ancestors either fought for the South and owned slaves, or they were still in Europe at the time. Yeah, I I, I'm, I think I'm the same way, actually. Okay. So, so that's why I don't get the whole heritage and pride of, like, all this other stuff, and, like, they wish... I don't It's To me, it just seems so misguided and just kind of an excuse to cover up uh, latent or blatant racism. Anyway, <laughs> before we get to today's story, so I did do uh, an episode th- uh, over three years ago in, in, in 2019 on Amistad, which just to kind of put that in context, so Amistad was set in 1839, I believe. Does that sound right? That's what, it's, that's what it shows on, the, uh, okay. on yeah. our spreadsheet here. Uh, 1839. And Solomon Northup is captured in 1841, so just two years later. So you're, it's definitely very much in the same same time period there. And I did talk about a little bit briefly in that episode uh, the history of the slave trade. So I don't want to just like rehash everything I talked about. Then you can refer back to that episode, which is pretty short because I didn't have Logan there to talk to. Uh, So, uh, but I did want to bring up some notes and things that maybe we had not considered before, just overall context of slavery and just kind of some random thoughts. I I was telling Logan off air here. um, I did listen to the Dan Carlin hardcore history episode on slavery. And some of this is things he had mentioned. Other, some of it is just things that I thought about while he was talking and just kind of ways to conceptualize the institution of slavery. And And the first thought, that he mentions is that now in human history is the anomaly that most of human history was humans enslaving other humans. And yes, there is the stats out there too, but there actually are more slaves now than there ever were before. And I'm not actually disagreeing with that, but it's not the same chattel slavery, basically where you're treating the human as like you own them or almost you're branding them. You're, you know, you're keeping them, pinned up like that kind of slavery is not the kind of slavery when they say there's more slaves now than ever it's more coercive slavery uh indentured servitude uh there is obviously the the human trafficking sex slave issue today it's like there there it is still an issue but the chattel slavery that existed before in the u.s and and other places around the world that is a much smaller percentage uh and and today is kind of the anomaly yeah right right modern slavery is a lot more subtle a lot more 
under the radar. Yes. A lot more like, uh, what was the name of the, what was the Brazilian movie from last year? Seven Prisoners. Seven Prisoners. It's a lot more like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Than just someone who has a literal barn full of humans that come and work their fields. Right, and, every, and, and all their neighbors kind of know it kind of thing, right. Which... Right, through exactly. Most of, yeah. And I'm, we're not just talking about the United States. In, like, ancient Rome and stuff, you had your slaves that lived in your house or the quarters. And, like, it was, it's been a thing most of human history until recently. And it's almost like, well, man, how, how could that be? And the justifications, and obviously, you know, we, we know the Bible has been used to justify slavery, but even, even pre-biblical times, it was kind of just seen, and some of this is conjecture, but just the idea that, like, oh, well, hey— some people are very smart and important and strong, and they need they have more things to do to help society. So they're just going to take some of these, quote, lesser humans, put them to work to deal with all their menial tasks, while they can focus on the betterment of society. And like, right, yeah. that kind of justification was used for millennia to be like, why one people should enslave another. Yeah. And just that it was so interconnected with every aspect of life and you couldn't have eliminated slavery in ancient Rome without it having a ripple effect to everything else, which again is kind of what you see in the United States as well. And why it leads to wars, because that was the idea of getting rid of slaves is economically devastating to the South. Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, and to the North too, to be honest. Well, true. Right, right. That's something too that, so John Green talks about this in the crash course for slavery where he talks about like, yes, slavery was, you know, is seen as like a Southern thing, like all the plant that you th- when you think of like the tobacco plantations and the cotton plantations and, you know, all like the Confederate states during the Civil War, all of that is in the South. But it's not like the North wasn't profiting off of that institution of slavery just as much. Just because they outlawed slavery in their states doesn't mean that the bankers and the merchants that were shipping the stuff and insurance companies and manufacturing that relied on the raw agricultural imports, all of that economy is built on top of the institution of slavery and its inputs agriculturally in the South. Absolutely. And uh, we've also probably talked about before that pre-African slavery in the United States, or sorry, in the, in the, in the Americas, that slavery wasn't really a racially divided thing and dan connor was kind of talking about like even our conception of racism based on different colors of skin really didn't exist before like the 16th century and it wasn't because people were more accepting it's because people hated everyone who wasn't their insular group and so it wasn't about right. I hate black people. It's like I hate everyone who doesn't live in my town. Right. So th- think about it like uh, like when we were talking about like the Vikings. Today we would consider all those people white. But if you were Danish, you didn't like the Norwegians, or you didn't right. like the Germanic people, or you didn't like the Saxons. Even though like today we would say, oh, those are all just white people. It's like no, if they are not in your specific group, it didn't matter what right. color they were. You hate them all, <laughs> no matter what. Right. So if you randomly, so if you run across a tribe with black skin, you're like, well, they're just different too. Like they're no, it's, it's, it was irrelevant because I hate everyone who's not in our group. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so what's kind of interesting, and this is another thing I had not heard before that the, the shift and the idea of slavery going from just enslaving our, our neighbors, people we conquer in war, people who owe us money and it's shifting to a race-based thing where everybody in this category racially is enslaved and thought to be less than. It was kind of a coincidence of timing that just kind of made this make sense for a million different reasons economically. Yeah, it's it's almost like a 
I don't want to say happy accident, but it's like, it's not like there was this, uh, you know, this plan, like when European colonization was first happening, that they were like, oh, and we're just going to take all these slaves from Africa too. It just kind of, all the advantages of that made that then the most popular option. Right, right. It's 100% economically driven. Right. And when you and when you think about it, too, is like, that wasn't even their first choice. Right. Because their first choice probably would have been... The natives. Uh, ...to try and use natives. Right. But the thing is, is that natives can just run away. And they know the land better than you. So they're very hard to catch and enslave. And they all died of disease. That, too. And there weren't very many of them because they all died of disease. And the ones that were there could very easily evade you. Yes. Whereas... If you go get African people and enslave them, then in the Americas, what they can't run away. It's not like they can hide in society. They look African. Right. That's like the whole thing. Right. They're, they're, they're basically labeled. That's what made it yeah. so profitable. Yeah. Right. Exactly. We, so the cool, a couple other things with that that I had never uh, really considered before. So at the same time, you have this age of exploration starting and you know the Portuguese and then the Spanish start slowly getting farther and farther away from home. They work their way around southern Africa over to India. So now they have this new contact with sub-Saharan Africa. Again, basically anything south of the Sahara Desert. At the same time, the Turks take over Constantinople and cut off that port. Apparently the Black Sea was a major trade hub for white slaves from that area. So at the same time, Mm. you're discovering Africa, you're losing what white slaves you could have had before. And so it's like, oh, well, let's just take these people. And it just timed out perfect. And they're also, Sub-Saharan Africans are more disease resistant than even the Europeans. So you could take them over to the new world. Oh, and hey, they're not dying off like the natives or even like some of the whites we we could have, you know, had as indentured servants. So it's just, again, it's purely economically driven and then it evolved, obviously, over over centuries. Yeah, this... One of the uh, history books that I've had in a, in a in one of my history classes talked about that in the mid 1600s and actually all the way up until Bacon's Rebellion in 1676, the majority of workers on southern tobacco and sugar farms were actually white servants. Oh, really? Right. And so after the rebellion of these former servants, there was this shift towards African slaves because of the you know the very distinct advantage inherent to using africans and they can't run away they can't escape into society without being you know sticking out like a sore thumb yeah yeah uh he also mentioned that remember columbus was looking for the east indies so he expected to find markets and they could trade immediately with already existing markets now they get to this place that's rich in right. resources but there's no infrastructure. So, oh crap, how do we make the best of this? We need a bunch of quick labor. And so then that's why it was first the natives and then the Africans. And again, it's again, the economics of it. The other one that I thought was interesting is you think about this times out with the end of the medieval period and you get into the Renaissance and into the Enlightenment and that they're actually saying you would think that would like if we're supposedly enlightened and you know the rebirth of the renaissance here then why were people still okay with slavery it's because well the renaissance was all about rediscovering the philosophy and politics and science of the ancient world well what did greece and rome have in abundance 
slaves. Slaves. And so yeah. they're basically saying that was justification for them. That was like a popular, yeah, a popular justification, a popular argument in support of slavery in the United States even was, well, look at how great the ancient Greek and Roman societies were. Right. And they had slaves. And they had slaves. Yep. So we should do the same thing because we want to be as successful as they were. There's a quote here that I like. It said it transformed America from a society with slaves in which slavery was one system of labor among others into a slave society where slavery is at the center of the economic process. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's a good way to put it. Side note on the natives, because I hadn't thought about it this way. Obviously, even though I've heard the percentages of it, I just never thought because you hear about 90% of the native population being wiped out due to disease which is just nuts, but right. it's easy to forget that, like, and you talk about the Black Death in Europe taking, you know, uh, a third to half the population. Well, guess what that is? Way less bad than what happened to the Native Americans. So you don't think about, you yeah, hear exactly. about the Black, the Black Death wiping out half up to half of Europe. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, the Natives were 90% wiped out. So they basically, uh, someone had said that it was like a thousand years of death and suffering concentrated into a few decades. And that's what happened to the Native Americans right. when the Europeans uh, started showing up with their diseases. Yeah. And, and yes, some of you, you know, there are the stories of, you know, intentionally giving natives blankets infected with smallpox and all those kinds of things that are horrible. But even if he was saying the most benevolent Europeans came over and wanted nothing but peace and prosperity for the natives, they still would have wiped them out with their diseases. There was no avoiding it. Right. Exactly, because not only are the people carriers of those disease those diseases, but they're bringing with them domesticated animals like right. pigs and cows and chickens that are you know the vectors for things like flu with the pigs and the and the chickens, things like smallpox with the cow. Yeah, it's they, because they didn't they had no domesticated animals. Right, right. So they they were not living in a, in a you know it's not like they were living in a city like London where you have all these domesticated animals all the time and you're always around them and you're always around their excrement and their dead corpses everywhere. Right. The natives had nothing like that. That's why it was so devastating. Right. Basically, hundreds of generations with no significant contact to the filth right. that generates the kind of diseases that the rest right. of the world had been exposed to. And that's why there was no like plague going the other way there was no right. diseases that the that the europeans were catching from the natives because it was all of the diseases that they were bringing was because of their contact with their domesticated animals and the natives didn't have anything like that so there was nothing going the other way it's not like it was a two-way street where oh yeah 90 percent of the natives got wiped out but so did 90 percent of the europeans right. because of all of their strange diseases it was only one way yep yep crazy and then we talked about so yeah the economics it, it, it is like you mentioned it's basically sugar and tobacco into cotton and it just seems weird today because we take these things for granted. But these were, again, tobacco was literally a new product. It didn't exist outside of the Americas. So huge, right. huge cash crop. Smoke, we mentioned before, smoking now becomes a thing. So there's tons of money there. Sugar, that is crazy common today, was a rare commodity. Again, we've talked about that's why you get, you know, cake on your birthday is because sugar is so rare and expensive will splurge for your birthday. And so right. it, it was basically like striking oil how much you get sugar. But what you also need for sugar is a lot of cheap labor. So right. because of these crops that were so dependent on lots of labor, slavery was just the way to make it happen. And they just didn't really bat an eye. And, you, right. and it's it's sad to think that like everyone was just kind of okay with this. And we talked about all the justifications, but even people who may have been 
somewhat against it. You kind of just ignore it if it's not right in front of your face. Kind of like we do today when right. we don't think about, oh, where do all the precious metals come from to put my iPhone together? Or where does where, where is the iPhone itself assembled? Yeah. It's like, oh, I really don't want to know. It's like, yeah, you know what? Neither the day. So even if people were yeah. not okay with it, they just live with that as part of the world. Exactly. Well, and, and the other thing too is that because you have this heavy reliance on specifically African slave labor in the South, it results in a society where the proliferation and preservation of explicitly white supremacist power structures is necessitated. And even the poor farmers who owned just enough land to like feed themselves and really didn't participate in the market at all and, you know, never owned slaves and and never really aspired to were either, you know, ambivalent towards it because it's like, well, why, you know, why am I going to stick my neck out? Like I, I'm barely doing better than them anyway. Or they were outright supporters of it because it's like, well, maybe someday I'll, you know, if I am a successful enough farmer or businessman, maybe someday I can own slaves. And so it's, I don't know, it's just, it's a, you can easily see how someone, even someone in a position as low as, you know, I literally just grow enough food to feed me and my family, like, they're not going to stick their neck out to try and to push back on the institution of slavery, like at all. And also because it gives them, as long as they're not black, it gives them position and status right. in society. Even if they, even if it doesn't really mean anything because, you know, they're still super poor, at least they're not a slave. Right, which, which again, is one of those things that even has ripples to today and people will, people who get upset about the term white privilege will talk about, well, hey, I grew up poor, I worked for everything I had. And it's like, uh-huh. And never once was your whiteness a hindrance to your progress. That's white privilege. Right. It's not about having a leg up. It's about the lack of a disadvantage that sure. assuming African-Americans still have to, today. So, yeah, and we've talked about before, the founders were very much aware of the contradiction. They, it's called the original sin. Jefferson, slaveholding Jefferson, he was aware of the contradiction. They basically just decided to punt it and to focus on independence during the Revolutionary War. And they knew slavery would basically come to bite them at some point. And obviously it does. Now, we're not yet to the Civil War. We'll get to the Civil War here in the next few weeks. But you can definitely kind of see how it's uh, building toward that. Basically, the the idea was kind of like, all right, we can we can keep this balance going between like the slave states and the not slave states, and you know, as long as we're delicate about it, you know, we can kind of live and let live, even though we don't like slavery, you know, and they know that we don't like it. Like we kind of need them economically because they're the ones that are making all of the raw inputs for our you know industrialized North, and so. Yeah, the whole the issue was handled with kid gloves for like almost 300 years. Right. The other thing that Carlin mentioned was that slavery may have been arguably kind of on the decline at the end of the 18th century, meaning it might have been more something they might have been able to extricate themselves from in the foreseeable future until the cotton gin. Yes. And cotton now basically becomes yep. the new sugar as you transition into the beginning of the 19th right. century. And this number I thought was crazy. From 1792, before the cotton gin, to 1820, after an influx of even more slaves and really getting contraproduction ramped up, the cotton output in the United States increased by 200-fold. 
what it was. Yeah. Right. Not 200%. Right. No, no, no. 200 right. times. Right. 200 times. And, and the slave yeah. later just became, the slavery just became uh, super necessary all over again. And you have that increase happening as public sentiment is start to shift maybe towards abolition at this, so it's the same time. So the you have, at the same time, people are saying maybe right. we shouldn't have slaves. We also now need more slaves than ever. And so that's right. kind of why you end up with this, uh, this breaking point we will get to. Yeah, I, I think in the, uh, in the crash course, they said that it, at the height of U.S. cotton production, something like it was like, oh, like three quarters, it was over 70% of the world's cotton huh. came from the United States. Which means it came from the southern United States. <laughs> yeah. It came from the south, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the one other thing on this I wanted to mention, and then we can talk about the movie, and then I kind of want to do a recap of U.S. presidents through this point in our timeline. One thing Dan Carlin spent a lot of time focusing on was we know about the horrors of slavery. We see them in this film and we will talk about them here some more. Uh, we know about the horrors of the crossing of the Atlantic and how, how hard it was just to even survive the ship crossing. What he talked about was what may have actually been worse than all of that is everything before you even left to cross the Atlantic. Basically, the trauma of your village is raided, you're beaten, you're captured, you're separated from your family, you're watching your family get killed if they're not able to be captured. And then, okay, well, maybe you're 500 miles from the Atlantic coast. So now you have this trip over land while in bondage to get to the, the coast and, and you're starving and beating and all those kinds of things. And then he was saying, probably even the worst one was, well, it took a while to fill a ship. So you might get loaded onto a ship and then spend months on that boat as it's just going along the coast of Africa, waiting to be filled up. And then after maybe two or three yeah. months, you'll begin the voyage across the Atlantic. Right. Anyway, just the absolute trauma of something like that. Right, yeah. So, today's film, it's amazing. It's a 95 slash 90 on Rotten Tomatoes. It was uh, nominated for... Nine Oscars, winning three, including Best Picture, Best Screenplay, Best Supporting Actress, Lupita Nyong'o. This is basically her breakout role. Uh, she's been in tons of things yeah. since. This was kind of where she first got on everybody's radar. She was absolutely, I mean, well, the, this whole movie is absolutely devastating. And it's almost like, and that's all epitomized in uh, Lupita Nyong'o's story. And when Solomon kind of uh, runs, runs across her and that, oh, yeah, yeah just... It's, yeah, it's beyond intense. So, uh, yeah, Solomon Northrup, in real life, he was born free. And even his mom, I think, had never even been a slave. That is correct. His mother was a free black woman in in New York. Okay, and his dad had been a slave but was freed. So this is a guy who never knew bondage in that, in that way. And again, I, the, the movie probably underplays to what extent there would have still been racism toward him in the North. We don't really see much of that. We see him kind of getting along with her. Actually, no, don't they start in the shop? That's and they do have a little bit of That's actually that's actually a good point. Yeah, because so yeah, there is that scene in the shop where it's I forget the exact dynamic, but that guy there's a guy that walks in, like a black guy, who is a slave, right? Oh, right, right, right. He's buying stuff for on behalf of somebody and they kind of assume Solomon has that kind of thing too. And he's like, No, I'm here for myself and they kind of make some bad assumptions. So yeah, there is a little bit of racism, I guess, still right. going on. But well, yeah, and th and that's actually a good point. Is that even when we talk about like, oh, you know, the the 
northern free states versus the southern slave states, it's not like just because slavery was outlawed meant that no one was racist. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's not yeah. like people. It's not like black people living in you know New York or Delaware like were having a great time. I mean, just because they were technically free doesn't mean that they were necessarily treated like equals. And haven't they even talked about even to today that schools in the north are more segregated than schools in the south because of just how where people move to live and stuff like that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the statistics are on that, but that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, so back to Solomon. He's a musician. A couple guys ostensibly are hiring him for a gig in DC, and he's like, "Oh, right. well this is a good opportunity, but they're I don't I mean they're slave traders." So they capture him and sell him into slavery. And so the plot of the movie is extremely simple. He gets tricked and sold into slavery. And the movie is called 12 Years a Slave. So, spoiler alert, he's a slave for 12 years. Right. Now, I guess what you wouldn't know from the title is if he lives or not. But since it's based on a book he wrote after the 12 years yeah. was up, again, it's not surprising that he doesn't actually get escaped. So he gets basically rescued. And right. that's it. That's the story. But he kind of goes from... Uh, he works on a couple different plantations and he is all kind of down in the Louisiana areas where he gets sold down to. But the movie is really just encapsulating the horrors of it through his experience. We see his masters with again, varying degrees of severity. Benedict Cumberbatch is a mostly kindly master versus uh, Michael Fassbender is an absolute sadist and villain. We meet Lupita Nyong'o's character. Who's another slave who has things uh, far worse. Cause she's basically getting raped on a regular basis. And it's just a horrific, horrific look at what slavery was like. But then you basically listen to historians talk about this movie and they talk about it being one of the most accurate depictions of slavery ever put on film. And so right. we don't necessarily yeah. even need to hash it out much more than that. So I, I did want to address something. So we see Michael Fassbender's character repeatedly and regularly sexually assault his slaves. Yes. And... There is, it, it wasn't always necessarily, well, okay, I don't know how to word this. It, there was some utility to it as well, in addition to being sick and disgusting. You, you could, because you're basically making, you're making the next generation of slaves for free? Because there were laws on the books at the time that said that any child born to mixed status parents would have the slave status of the mother. So it like legally incentivized slave owners to sexually assault and impregnate their slaves because any children born would then also be slaves that that slave owner would own right yeah that's i mean just and those were those were like legal laws on the books right uh yeah i, I don't necessarily i don't have anything more than that i just like no i it's honestly it's like it's, it's almost like just let that sink let that sink in for a little bit yeah yeah no right and it, and it, it just it just is so frustrating today when people are just like oh, it's it's been 150 years, quote, get over it. And, like, I was even trying to do, like, a little thought experiment. Like, what if some, like, purple species came from outer space and abducted a bunch of white families and put them into centuries of inservitude, and then some other people in the future were trying to tell you, they're like, well, you're better off here on Pleptar 9 than you were back on Earth. And 
all, all these kinds of things. It'd be like, no, go F yourself. Like, right. how dare you? Yeah. How dare you? Well, okay. And that was actually, that's another thing that, I mean, people people talk about that now about how, oh, you know, you you get to live in America now. Like, isn't it, doesn't that make all of the horrible things in the past almost worth it? But even at the time, there were people who were like, oh, no, no, like slavery is actually good for the slaves because they're getting, they get shelter, they get clothes, right. they get fed. They have a sense of purpose. They get to experience and participate in our culture, even if it is in this this way of them being a slave. The fact that they get to participate at all is beneficial to them. Right. Yeah, Dan Carlin, Carlin also shared a couple anecdotes, and it was, this was like an account from, oh, it was like the mother of a family of five, and they lived on a plantation with 200 slaves, and she was trying to get the reader to commiserate with her with like, oh... Every day we're just surrounded by these poor, downtrodden black souls, and it's just so depressing. And like, oh man, our life is the worst. And just just writing these kinds of thoughts, like sincerely, like woe be to us because it's five of us with two hundred slaves, and our lives suck because of that. Unbelievable, <laughs> right? It's just well, we see that in the movie. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The mom who is sold with Solomon. Uh, is separated from her children and she basically spends like the next however many months that she's at that plantation crying yeah and she gets sold off by benedict cumberbatch's wife because like i just can't listen to her cry anymore right like how annoying is that right that she's crying all the time the other thing and i i I think we may we see i forget if we see a suicide in the movie or not but again that's the other thing you don't think about is the suicide that would have occurred along the way. So I mentioned every, everywhere from the moment of capture. Mm. I don't. I mean, I don't know numbers or percentages, but like slaves would have been killing themselves at a very high clip just to, to end the suffering. So right. Well, that's that's the problem. Well, that that is a, a another big problem with quantifying anything to do with slavery is that so much of it just wasn't documented. Right. Right. You know what I mean? Because like, who if you're if you're on a, a slave ship going from Africa to the East Coast of the United States, and you don't even view them as human, so why are you going to painstakingly keep track of how many people either fall overboard or throw themselves overboard? Like, you don't care. You're Like, if you get enough of them to port its profit anyway, so why, why am I going to painstakingly keep track of everyone who died along the way? Right. It's the whole history is written by the winners, and guess who did not win? Yeah. Slaves. Right. Uh, one inaccuracy worth noting, and this is just from the Wikipedia page. It did say that, like, in, so in the movie, uh, this is, I think, even on the uh, on the boat when they're when Solomon's kind of going around Louisiana there, that one of the slaves steps in and stops the sailor from raping one of the women, and the sailor just doesn't hesitate and kills him. You know, and they're basically saying like, well, he wouldn't have been so quick to murder because again economics you don't own that slave right you can't just kill it like that yes you owe me money and like they kind of don't address it like that so yes the dehumanization was accurate but again it all comes down to economics that wasn't his slave to kill and then it actually even says that's not in the book that was added for the movie so solomon himself didn't even write about that incident so it would not have happened that way not that again i'm sure there were examples but that specifically was not in the book and was just added for the movie yeah, there's a little bit, you, you hear a little bit of criticism of the whole white savior thing, which I kind of get. But at the same time, how else was Solomon going to ever get out of it, this thing? So, like, basically, this is what happened. Like, he did run into a yeah. Canadian guy 
who can who he confided in and that canadian guy contacted his friends up north and that's how he ends up getting rescued like that is what happened right it's it's kind of like in this movie you see the quote-unquote good version of it like it's it's done in the best way that i think it can be done like it is still kind of eye-rolly when you see like brad pitt white savior anti-racist jesus right save solomon north it's like oh okay like i understand that this is like he is a historical figure whatever and like this is what is written down in the book more or less so like fine but it it's uh yeah it's it's like a good version of the super eye rolly not at all earned moment we were talking about from the patriot with heath ledger oh, and yes when he's talking to the black soldier about you know we're fighting for you know freedom for all oh, man it's like okay <laughs> that is super eye rolly this is actually earned and is still a little bit eye rolly but it's it's done as well as you can right and i feel bad because i like brad pitt but the eye rolly part is producer on this film one of the most favorite actors of all time brad pitt puts himself in this role to be the white savior and i like brad pitt right but it's like yeah you know what maybe he cast a nobody in that role just yeah because it almost right it takes you out of the movie it takes you out of the movie because it's brad pitt right because when you look at the billing for this movie brad pitt is by far the biggest a-lister on the whole cast Right, because he's one, yeah, he's one of the biggest stars in the world, yeah. Right, and so the fact that he put himself in there, yeah, I, I think is a little bit, you know, but, yeah, what are you going to do? <laughs> no, right, yeah, hey, it's still one best picture, and, you know, yeah, anyway. But yeah, for me, you know, as much as I did like this movie, it, that, that kind of always takes me out of it, because it just, be, all of a sudden you become hyper-aware, that's Brad Pitt, as opposed to, this is some random dude right. he's working with who's going to help him out. Right. While we're on the subject of other, just people in the movie just a real quick note shout out some praise to lay at the feet of chiwetel ejiofor oh who i think yes. is severely underrated yes like i haven't seen a ton of stuff with him in it he's he's hardly ever a lead in stuff that he's in but like he's in some good some really good movies like inside man children of men He's in Serenity, the Firefly movie. He's really yeah, good at that. Yeah. He always he always kills when he's on screen. Like he's always awesome. I love seeing him in movies and I wish that he was utilized more and put in more leading roles because he is awesome. Oh, The Martian is another one that I forgot about. Yes, yes. He's definitely a guy like you recognized him even before 12 Years a Slave. But you never bothered learning how to pronounce his name until after 12 Years a Slave. but yeah great yeah great performances i mean again we are both massive michael fassbender fans and oh yeah i actually really respect his ability to because i feel like this isn't the thing much anymore but like we kind of forget i'd always heard like back in the 40s 50s 60s actors would have been very very hesitant to ever play a role like this because they don't want to be associated with that level of villainy that the star always had to be the good guy oh and right, yeah, the lack of self consciousness that Michael Fassbender has to just let it rip and be pure evil. Yeah. He actually gives a masterful performance as well, and is yeah, yeah, he was nominated as well. As far as as far as villain roles in this movie, that's the big one. That's right. like the the one that you know everyone knows and talks about. Paul Dano is oh, also yeah, yeah, really good in this movie yeah. as like. Just a a real piece of shit. Yeah. But a good performance as a piece of shit. Because he's more petty. He's more petty. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the last thing I wanted to talk about here is 
the presidents of the United States during this movie, but I also thought it'd be a decent time to do kind of a recap of where we are up through uh, 1853, heading to the end of this movie. So the 12 years that uh, Solomon Northrup was enslaved, depending on which month he was actually captured and released, you had as many as seven presidents in that 12-year span. Oh, wow. And so he was 1841 to 1853. So in 1840, William Henry Harrison got elected. So at the beginning of 1841, Martin Van Buren, who we've talked about, was still president. Then William Henry Harrison gets sick during his inaugural address and dies like a month later. Oh, right. Yeah. And so then John Tyler becomes the first ever vice president to ascend to basically take office because the president is gone. Like, he was an elected president, he was elected vice president, and now becomes the president. And actually, uh, worth noting is, before that time, it's actually unclear if the vice president literally becomes president, or if he just assumes the duties of the president. Mm. And so, basically, before anyone really could really ask what we're supposed to do, John Tyler is taking the oath of office as president of the United States. So that's what set the precedent going right. forward. Versus it could have been, it could yeah. have played out differently. And then Tyler is booted from the Whig party, like while he's in office. So technically you could argue then he's the second president to not have a party because we talk about George Washington. John Tyler is actually kicked out of his oh. own party midterm. Like okay. he's literally the sitting president is not, and is now no longer a member of the Whig party. Yeah. So in the next election, Tyler runs as an independent but then ultimately drops out to support James K. Polk, who is then elected next. Uh, and Polk is just another kind of Andrew Jackson disciple. He's kind of from, from that, that tree. And we've talked about him before because he was the Manifest Destiny guy, Mex- uh, the Mexican-American War. That's all right. during Polk's presidency. Yeah. And he did not seek re-election. Apparently, he just kind of said when, even when he ran first place, I'm, gonna, I'm, a, I'm a one-term guy. And he okay. did that and didn't run again. Uh, next, we get Zachary Taylor who was kind of a hero from the Mexican-American War. And he was aided by the fact that Martin Van Buren was actually running again as a third-party candidate. And so he split the Democratic vote, and that gives Taylor the Whig uh, the win. Uh, But Taylor also died in office after just 16 months. It was kind of just a sudden stomach disease thing, and... He was gone, and so now Millard Fillmore becomes the second vice president to ascend to the presidency. And so this had this had the vice president ascending to the presidency had never happened yet, and now it happens twice in how many years? Uh, eight. Twice in eight years. Yeah. So eighteen forty one, then again eighteen forty nine. So, or sorry, fifty eighteen fifty. So nine years. But yeah. So Fillmore, he was not very. He just wasn't popular, so he was kind of anti-slavery, but also said, like, the government doesn't have a role in abolishing slavery. He is the last Whig president. Again, he was kind of so unpopular that when he went to rerun again, he didn't even get his party's nomination. Like, they nominated somebody else instead of the sitting president from their own party to run for president. Huh. And so, because of that, it kind of isn't surprising then if the incumbent president is literally booted from his own party's nomination... Franklin Pierce wins in a landslide and is very popular, very charismatic. Now we are into, this is the 1852 election. So Pierce would have been elected while Solomon Northup was still a slave. And then whether he took office before or after Solomon was freed, I don't know how the timeline worked out there. 
But yeah, he was he was very popular. He was I don't know if he was fully pro-slavery, but he was definitely anti-anti-slavery. Like Pierce thought the abolitionists were going to ruin the country or put the country at serious risk. And so he was right. very anti the abolitionist movement. Uh, he did also bring part of your state of Arizona into the union because he was the president who signed the Gasden Purchase into law. That little southern oh, that, part that made it a, a territory, or was a part of a was a part of a state. Well, so we were we we had already gotten uh, Mexico and Arizona, or sorry, New Mexico and Arizona. I don't know if they were states yet, but there's those little slips, the little slip at the bottom of New Mexico and Arizona that was actually remained part okay. of Mexico. Until Franklin Pierce. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. That became part of the Arizona Territory? Yeah. You'll see some maps of that little sliver at the okay. bottom. And uh, they kind of finally was yeah. the last. And actually, that might have been, I, I didn't double check this. That might have actually been the last piece of the current contiguous United States, United States to be acquired. So what kind of finalized the shape of the lower 48 oh, okay. was this Gazden yeah. purchase, uh, if memory serves. He also tried to acquire Cuba, uh, but was unsuccessful. And then that kind of gets us all the way through, uh, let's see, Franklin Pierce was the 14th president, because we've already talked about everyone else, you know, just to kind of recap before Van Buren, George Washington, obviously we've talked about a bunch, John Adams, we talked about a bunch, Thomas Jefferson, we talked about a bunch, James Madison, we've talked about a little bit, because he was during the War of 1812, Uh, his wife's the one that kind of, you know, is saving paintings and stuff as the British set fire to the White House. James Monroe, we talked about uh, because he was the the Monroe Doctrine guy, and he was mm-hmm. president during basically during the Revenant and the Max, Mask of Zorro. You know, in the 1820s, that was when James Monroe was president. John Quincy Adams, we saw way back in the Amistad episode, is he was actually it was after his presidency. He actually went back and served in Congress and was involved with the Amistad case, literally presenting to the Supreme Court on their behalf. Andrew Jackson, we talked about a bunch. And he was succeeded by Martin Van Buren, who was also in the Amistad movie. So we've kind of talked about now officially. Again, I kind of wanted to do this. It's kind of overwhelming, but I wanted to mention every president as we kind of go through our timeline here. So we're now right. officially 14 for 14 <laughs> on mentioning every president. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yes, we get one step closer to the Civil War next week when we look at the film Santa Fe Trail from 1940, which also gives us our home state of Kansas. All right. As we will discuss the revolutionary anti-slavery figure of John Brown. So stay tuned. <laughs> 